Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source. My co-host is Nicole Vulcan, our editor. We are powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. And we are also powered in this segment by Rock and Dave's Bistro and Backstage Lounge, Midtown Hotspot for bagels, breakfast, sandwiches, soups, salads, and catering. We thank them for their support. Uh, we, we're glad that you're taking some time to listen to us chat with the people who shape our local community. I always feel very lucky to do this podcast in a swirling, crazy days uh, of the week, putting out the paper. We get to pause and uh, be a little contemplative here with, with, with some folks, and we're lucky to have Dana Whitelaw with us today. Dana uh, Whitelaw, PhD, joined the staff of the High Desert Museum in Bend, Oregon in 2008 and has served as its executive director since 2014. Raised in Oregon, she earned her doctorate from the University of Colorado Boulder in biological anthropology, conducting research that took her to Madagascar, South Africa, Kenya, Ethiopia, and China. During that time, Dana became inspired by the work museums do to energize and engage visitors with the learning and discovery of academia. Under Dana's leadership, the High Desert Museum has become a Smithsonian affiliate, has experienced record attendance, and earned the prestigious 2021 National Medal for Museum and Library Service. Oof. Uh, the museum also received the 2019 Western Museums Association's Charles Red Award for Exhibition Excellence. Dana serves on the board of the Western Museums Association, the State Cultural Advocacy Coalition, Visit Central Oregon, and Art in Public Places. She lives in Bend with her husband and sons, and in their free time, they ski, bike, and run together. Dana, thanks for taking some time with us today. Such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, so you've been the executive director of the High Desert Museum for close to little close to 10 years now and uh, you worked there prior to that. What was your role before becoming executive director? How does one roll into something like this? Uh, that's a great question, because I think uh, a lot of people land in museums from, from different places. Yeah. And we have a lot of those at the High Desert Museum, which I love. And when I was finishing up in graduate school, um, I knew that I was looking for a career outside of academia and museums seemed like the perfect place to bring some of that academic rigor and knowledge and inspiration to a, a wider audience. That's what attracted me. And when my husband and I were looking to move from Colorado to Oregon, the High Desert Museum had a grant writer job posting and I have applied and got the job as a grant writer. And um, from there, I moved into the director of programs position that develops a lot of the education exhibitions and kind of daily programs at the museum, and then was fortunate, fortunate enough to get the executive director position. Great. Awesome. So um, I'm curious about your, you know, how does one find themselves in biological anthropology? What drew you to that work and to pursue that as your PhD? When I was young, um, I was really inspired by stories of the non-human primates, specifically Jane Goodall and her groundbreaking work in Africa with chimpanzees. I was a National Geographic nerd, <laughs> and that became a dream of mine to go live in Africa 
particularly with primates. And I then came to learn that um, biological anthropology is the field where scholars focus on that. And anthropology is a really inspiring discipline. It involves culture and archaeology and linguistics and the biological origins of the human species. And so I, it's a, typically talked about as a four-field field discipline. And uh, and I wanted to focus on the non-human primates. So that was my path. And um, I, as I was making my way through graduate school, I found that I wanted to work um, to um, really make a, an impact in conservation. Um, many primate species are critically endangered. And so that became an area of focus for me to, um, to live and work and study a critically endangered primate species. And um, I also had a young child at the time and needed to go to someplace that was relatively safe for a two-year-old and, uh, and my husband. And Madagascar became the place that, that made a lot of sense to go. It's, um, it's an amazing country in terms of biodiversity and culture and richness um, in the landscape and lemurs are, are not doing well in, in the world these days. So that became, um, a place that I could, that I could make an impact. And we lived there for almost two years, um, in a tent with a two-year-old, which was actually kind of the (laughs) easiest part. It seemed like the hardest part of what we would do and, um, you know, kids and wildlife and living in a forest that they excel, (laughs) there. <laughs> Parenting is a little bit harder. So what is the what's yep. that look like? Um, you know, the work of studying animals in their native habitat is somewhat romanticized. I mean, what does that look like actually on the ground when you're doing that kind of work? Especially and you can elaborate with a that, two-year-old, I think you're you're exponentially making it harder. Yeah. And boy, did I have that like romanticized view of, because remember those great National Geographic films of Jane Goodall and her young son, and um, it looked so amazing. And um, there are probably, you know, everybody probably has iconic moments in their marriage where it's just, you're looking at each other thinking like, what have we done? And as we were driving to the research site in Madagascar with our two-year-old, I remember my husband looking at me and like, what the, were you thinking? (laughs) I was like, I thought it was a really great idea. And that was sort of how we began um, our our time in Madagascar together. And what does it look like on on day to day? So my husband is amazing. He, uh, you know, took care of our young son and I would go to work every day, which means like, you know, putting on a backpack and my equipment to go watch lemurs in the forest. And there are amazing and all of those romantic moments of studying wildlife in their native habitat come true because you see, you know, if you're spending eight to 10 to 12 hours a day in a forest watching animals, you get to see the most intimate moments of um, of wildlife lives. And, and I can share a few of those. But then there are the really bad moments where you can't find them for days. <laughs> the clock ticking for collecting research. And you're like, why didn't I go to medical school or, you know, become a teacher or something with a clearer path? Yeah. Um, so there are high highs and and low and low lows with it, but um, some pretty amazing moments of getting um, a really close up encounter with 
uh, empathy and emotion in animals, moments of predation and scarcity, habitat change happens in, you know, in real time there. And so it, it's quite dramatic. And how was it you- like habitat change? Like the, was the habitat change like human induced? Um, I'm curious about that. Yeah, some of it um, is uh, humans changing the landscape there. Madagascar is such an interesting place because humans have not been there for very long. It's roughly 1,500 years, depending on what research you're looking at. And so Madagascar evolved in with the absence of humans. And, um, and you can kind of put that into a human evolutionary context in a couple of different ways. But here is this biodiversity rich landscape and then humans arrive from southeast asia and east africa and and populate it and at the time madagascar had megafauna the world's largest bird the uh, largest flightless bird apiornis called the elephant bird lived there it's like over seven feet tall and um lemurs the size of gorillas i mean just like wildly crazy animals. And I love to think about what that must have looked like. And as we know, humans have dramatic impacts on landscapes in order to cultivate and to subsist. And um, and that's what's happening in Madagascar. People have to feed their families. And to do that, they need to grow things and clear land for crops. And this is on a subsistence level, um, not you know large-scale agriculture. And there are a lot of um, mechanisms of landscape change in Madagascar. Um, but that's, that was the major one that was interrupting a lot of the, the natural lemur habitat in the area where I worked. So people are burning down forests to, to plant crops, to literally feed their families that night. Um, other types of dramatic landscape changes are these stochastic events. So things that just interrupt, um, the, the season, for example, cyclones in this area are, incredibly dramatic and devastating in forests. And so you'd have these storms that would separate social groups and the river would flood and they couldn't come back together. There's a baby stuck on the other side of the river and um, the mom on one side and uh, just, you know, things that, um, so natural events, but catastrophic events um, at the same time that these wildlife groups are facing. And I think for primates, particularly primates that live in social groups, that kind of disruption not only has an impact on survival in terms of finding resources, but in terms of keeping social groups intact and and how they rely on each other that way. Um, So those are some of the, some of the mechanisms at play. That's really fascinating. So I'm thinking about, um, you know, the founding of the High Desert Museum in 19... 82 but by Don Kerr and he really wanted to you know start a museum really to see animals in their native habitat so um I mean it seems like a perfect you 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 know you you'll be an ideal person to you know continue that legacy but I wonder you know what how your influence over the years has you know maybe changed the scope of the of the museum or um you know just evolved it uh thanks for that question Don Kerr's vision, um, you know, just prior to 1982, when the doors opened at the museum, was to create this place that invited visitors in to have have these close-up inspirational encounters with wildlife. He grew up with those types of experiences of working with raptors and raised a wolf. And 
I really connect with his vision that way of having these amazing wildlife experiences that are so deeply inspirational and, um, and, um, just create such a, um, a way of looking at the world in a slightly different way and connecting ourselves to the landscape, um, through wildlife experiences. And similarly, he wanted to create, you know, not a typical museum. He talked about it as a museum, not bounded by walls, but by rivers and trees and mountains. And can you create experiences that really immerse visitors in that connection to the landscape? And he did it. And with, you know, starting with natural history and wildlife and the otter exhibit that, um, if the otters aren't sleeping, you cannot help but leave that with a feeling of joy and watching um, another mammal experience um, play and joy and connection with each other because they're social. So it's um, it's just that you know the museum is a is a perfect mix of those types of experiences. That vision has not changed. Our mission and our vision are so were so profoundly um, innovative and visionary at the time that the words in our mission have changed slightly, but that same, you know, creating immersive experiences to, to teach and to inspire, um, create wonder and awe that everybody needs for their well-being and to connect to something outside of yourself has, has remained true. And in my time at the museum, we have been so fortunate to work with an incredible team that has like incredible vision. This museum has always been aspirational and ambitious. When Dom Kerr started it, there were 17,000 people in Bend and he was like, hey, I have this idea. What about a, a museum dedicated to the high desert? And they're all these you know, longtime donors and, uh, and founding trustees who were like, yeah, we thought he was crazy. That's just wild. And, and it was, and it was visionary. And I think that that continues today. And what this museum does too, is attract, uh, the people who work here that are also aspirational and ambitious and want to create experiences that, uh, that connect our visitors in that same way. Dana, that's such a good segue into my one of the things I've been curious about with the museum, because you've been there and you have seen this transition in ben, the Bend community, Central Oregon itself. And, um, you know, people coming to a museum when there's 17,000 of them popping in is a lot different than today, where you've got hundreds of thousands of people in the county. How is that? How are you dealing with that, those kind of numbers with the popular? I mean, the High Desert Museum is so popular now. It's such a major attraction for the area. What does that mean for the ability to look at nature in its in its natural state and and managing people? It's got to be quite a change. Yeah, and I um, I think that's such a great point to put kind of some of that quantifying the way people experience the museum is different now. We see roughly 200,000 visitors a year. That was our attendance in 2019 and we're we're getting back up to those those numbers. And um the design of the museum, I'm going to go to just thinking about when you leave the when you leave Highway 97 and start driving up the driveway, your museum experience starts at that moment. And the designers and Don Kerr with his vision 
wanted that visitor experience to start there. There's an immediate decompression to driving through that forest to put you into this place and space. And um, so part of it starts there that I think that um, that visitors are kind of put into a mindset that this is going to, this is going to feel different. We want you to feel different here. And then quantitatively, this museum absorbs thousands of people amazingly well. We're on 135 acres and that walk through um, the outdoor exhibitions and then inside somehow and kind of miraculously tends to provide really still intimate uh, contemplative moments for visitors where you don't feel like you have that um, that kind of, um, you know, perhaps a frenzied visitor experience. Some days are uh, a little bit less, some days are a little bit more. Um, But to draw on your question a little bit more that one of the things that I think Don Kerr loved about the high desert was the subtlety of it and bringing attention to the sagebrush landscape in a way that some people might describe it as not as rich in terms of biodiversity or perhaps not as stunning as um as some vistas in um you know in the west and i think he he wanted to highlight the things that would draw your attention to those moments of wonder and awe and to look more intensively and in greater detail and with more scrutiny at really what is this landscape about in terms of both the humans and the non-human entities here that we share it with. I guess you can spread you can spread quite a few people over 137 acres, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm curious. We talked about in your your bio that now the museum is a Smithsonian affiliate. What does that mean, and um, why is that important to for the museum? Attaining the Smithsonian affiliation um, accreditation is a, is an incredible honor for us, and um, it allows us access to some of our nation's most rich collections. And right now at the High Desert Museum, we have a beautiful exhibition called Creations of Spirit, where we worked with seven Indigenous artists from the Plateau region to create new work. And we've been working with on this project since 2019. And these artists also went to uh, the collection that's online of the National uh, Museum of the American Indian, the Smithsonian Institution in DC and selected nine objects to bring home to the plateau. These are objects that were created here. They were imbued with the spirit of their maker here in the plateau. And um, it's been really special to be able to bring those home. So having the relationship with the Smithsonian now, we have access to to those collections and we've um, borrowed things now from NMAI, National Museum of the American Indian and the Art Museum as well. So providing a place for Central Oregon to view objects, artwork, connections from a national museum. And this place is amazing. The nearest dedicated art museum to us is the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art in Eugene, 120 miles away. We are the largest cultural institution on the east side of the mountains and feel that that role as an anchor for this region, for this community to experience um, 
galleries and objects and art, that is a, a huge responsibility that we have and having those relationships with places like the Smithsonian help us um, make that really impactful. I think you, you guys really took a, um, would change the complexion or complexity of the museum when you had the Burning Man exhibit. I mean, that was such a, such a, I mean, of course we, we loved it. We helped sponsor it and um, it, just an amazing way to take what people had perceived of as the High Desert Museum and kind of give it a whole new fresh aspect of what the museum could do. And um, I'm wondering if that has some, been somewhat liberating to allow you to start exploring more in those, those kind of ways. The Burning Man exhibit um, was was really great for us to do. And um, we opened that right before the pandemic. And I can't think of a more appropriate exhibition for us to kind of reopen the museum later in 2020 to, you know, an exhibit that's all about building community in a place where um, where people really need community and offering, you know, creative ways for people to, um, to, to think about community and connect with each other in different ways. Um, that exhibit had been on our, our list for a long time and, uh, new and not new in some ways that the museum has always been really, uh, attentive to telling contemporary stories and how how does the how has history helped frame what's going on in the arid west um, in you know today and in in subtle ways and then in kind of bold ways but I think that that's a really important piece to to weave in that this museum has always done that and at the same time I think it was surprising and unexpected uh, for the High Desert bold. Museum to take on. Yeah, certainly. What's that? It certainly was bold. It was a bold uh, exhibition. It was bold. Yeah, I love. Yeah, that. we talk about some of our um, exhibits as liftoff, and it's a it's a word that we use here at the High Desert Museum when something is bold, and risk taking, and visionary, and pushes us to do things that we haven't done before. And at the same time is pushing our audience to experience something new. And it's one of those words that we use where, so it has kind of those multiple um, meanings to it. And now when we see something or somebody brings up an idea, we're like, oh yeah, that's really lift off. <laughs> and I would say, um, imagine a world where we talked about the Rajneeshis and oh, yeah. um uh, you know, the community and antelope and how do we think about uh, intentional communities in the West and how does this landscape, the high desert landscape, create a place where something like Burning Man, a city of 80,000 pops up for, you know, two weeks, a, a week every year. What about this place and these people um, that live here create that kind of dynamic that that doesn't happen everywhere and I think that's something that is really cool to think about I think a lot of people who are in Oregon and in this community are deeply connected to this place and because it gives us um we have you know we have value we feel value from it um and and I think this museum is really good at uh, kind of thinking, pushing us to see where those subtle or bold um, areas of value are. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the the museum really spans a lot of material between, you know, you, you just talked about you know, the indigenous peoples and, you know, projects, you got the Burning Man exhibit. And then, of course, like some of the longstanding stuff is more like, you know, of course, the animals looking back at the, you know, the West, the days of the West. Um, what just can you just give us a sense of like what goes into creating an exhibit? Like what does the timeline look like and the conversations it must be pretty involved to pull something like that off? Yeah, typically those liftoff exhibits that we talk about are on a longer timeline. And we have um, a topic list of exhibit dream ideas that the exhibits team has. And this is a group of our um, our designers and curators. I sit on the exhibits team and, and we piece together because we have three changing galleries and what's the time of year for a particular topic and how much time do we need to prepare uh, for the next exhibition. Um, and well, and we start with, um, a lot of times it's with, what do we want to, what's a topic that we want our visitors to leave with a greater, uh, understanding and awareness about. And I'll give you an example of imagine a world, which talked about the Rajneeshis. And we thought, well, let's do, um, an exhibit on Rajneeshpuram and, um, you know, and focus on that. And this was several years ago. And then Netflix came out with their wild, wild country documentary series oh, scooped by Netflix. <laughs> and so that felt a little played for us to do an exhibit. So we were like, well, what can we push on this idea of an intentional community? What about this place tends to draw people to it to create intentional communities? And, you know, from the biosphere um, and different architectural, different arts and culture sectors. So it broadened um, that discussion was pushed to think about intentional communities in a, in a broader way. And then can we get our visitors to start thinking about, you know, what's their ideal community and what creates community? Um, and so that's a, a little bit uh, of an idea of how that some of them are several years in the making. Some of them, uh, we work with an individual artist to, um, to use their photographs, for example, in the arena, the exhibition on the black rodeo, the Bill Pickett invitational rodeo. We worked with Gabriella has and called her up. She had a new book out with some amazing photographs of the only invitational touring black rodeo in the nation. And she said, yes, I'd love to do my first museum exhibition at the high That's desert great. museum. Yeah. Dana, imagine that, um, you know, when you're putting these things together, you get a special attachment to almost all of them in some way, shape or form. But is there any one particular e exhibit that really resonates with you that you look back on and say that was pivotal for me or, you know, I still still is touching to you? Uh, yes. And you're right. I think we do um, love all of our exhibits almost all of them <laughs> in a special way. Um, and then there's always stories of, you know, like last minute disasters <laughs> as yeah. well. How yeah. do we, you know, bubble gum and duct tape something together as well. But um, I think uh, where we've really um, kind of pushed ourselves and where we have learned um, so much is in some of our really interdisciplinary exhibitions where we're bringing artists and scientists together to create something. And 
Um, we did an exhibition a couple of years ago on water in the West, and it was called Desert Reflections. And we took artists and scientists on a couple of field trips to some of our favorite places in the desert and built relationships among them to so that they created new work for the gallery. And that's always pretty transformational for us to see how that kind of creativity comes together. And a lot of times it's like, wow, we think these ideas are really cool. And we want to bring these ideas to our visitors in ways that are accessible. And sometimes science, you know, and reading a panel about water in the West is one of the least interesting ways to think about it. So can an artist provide a path to get there in a more interesting way? Creations of Spirit that's here uh, at the museum until October 1st is has been pretty transformational for us in um, in how we think about objects in in the museum. And this is something that's not unique to the High Desert Museum, but the museum field is really thinking about caring for objects from a more culturally responsive way. And what I mean by that is when um, when an indigenous artist creates artwork, they are imbuing their spirit in there. It's it's living. So one of the things that museums do is to take care of objects into perpetuity and from a western perspective and the way that traditional museum collections managers are trained the to take care of an object into perpetuity is to keep it in a box keep it away from light handle it as few times as possible and and then it'll last forever from an indigenous perspective, many times the best way to care for that object is for it to feel the passage of time and hear song and feel rain. And so what does that look like? Well, from our indigenous advisors, they're saying, well, sometimes take the baskets out when it's raining and let them feel sun and rain. And from a Western perspective, we're like, water on baskets? <laughs> right, right. You know, that, right. That's not right. And so it's really pushing us to think, you know, if we're really talking about carrying these, then we need to invite our tribal advisors in to play music for the objects. And um, I love, getting back to your question, Erin, I love when we learn new things and it pushes us into a different perspective and um, allows us to see the world in a, in a different way from a different worldview. And if the High Desert Museum can do that for our visitors through these experiences, we have we have made our our mission come to life. Yeah. So we haven't, um, you know, some of the feedback I've just anecdotally heard from around the community usually comes from kids or parents who have visited the museum. Um, friends from Portland come and say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. this That place was so amazing. Um, so I just wanted to like touch just briefly on the the educational programming and and the you know what what the museum offers to youth because I think it is such a huge piece of what you do. Um, so you just share for folks who maybe don't know um, all the things yeah. that you do in the educational realm. Some of the most impactful programs that the museum does are not in the galleries, and it's something that we need to talk more about because it's really significant work. Um, for example, the museum has a $1.2 million grant from the National Science Foundation to that's looking at, it's studying, this is a research grant on how can um, rural families experience STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math experiences in a way that is culturally sustaining. And 
So what that means, we're working on it. This is a research project. But what we hope to find at the end of four years is how can places like museums, which are informal learning settings, as opposed to formal learning settings, which are classrooms, create experiences that are place-based for families. Um, so for young kids and their caregivers to view the world and have a, have skills and literacy in STEM. But literal, literal, uh, literacy in STEM is from a cultural perspective. And oftentimes, you know, STEM professionals, you think of like scientists in lab coats. There are so many skills that people have who live in rural areas who are watching wildlife migration patterns and noticing seasonality and how is climate change influencing that, that are all linked to STEM. And so this program is is researching, you know, how can we amplify that in family workshops in rural settings that are really deeply meaningful, um, that promote longitudinal awareness and culturally sustaining STEM in families. So that's a place. And what does that look like in practice? Some of those workshops have focused on um, looking at wildlife in the area. So using camera traps and actually hair snares to analyze DNA to find what species of animals are here. The Sierra Nevada red fox is one of the least studied and least known mammals. And um, the families were able to find Sierra Nevada red fox on their camera traps and learning how to use radio telemetry to track them. Um, so these programs are, are really incredible. This particular program, um, we're now going to be doing workshops with the Oregon Coast Aquarium and then at a rural organization in Texas and then modeling it at a rural organization in upstate New York. So this is a, a national research program that the Little High Desert Museum right. is running. And uh, you're not seeing that in the galleries, but it's one of our more significant programs. So that's um, one example. And then of those 200,000 visitors, about 12,000 of those are students on classes who are having their first museum experience here and having an in-depth educator-led program in one of our classrooms and then taking those skills out and looking at them um, in the museum. We are working with the museum. Museum at Warm Springs and the Cultural and Heritage Office at the Confederate Tribes of Warm Springs on developing an indigenous curriculum project that will be rolling out to teachers to um, help teachers feel more comfortable and competent in uh, bringing awareness and understanding to uh, the tribes in our area. So those are a few things that happen behind the scenes here. Yeah, it's Super funny. Cool. It's funny when you say that the school is a formal setting in the museum as an informal setting when I, I know uh, certainly as a as a young person coming into those two settings I felt like you know when you're in the museum you're in, you're in a formal setting there <laughs> yeah that's interesting um to hear it that way because from uh and and that's you know like sort of museum educator lingo too that this is an informal setting but classroom teachers and classroom uh, researchers who look at how students learn in classrooms. It's a whole different set of yeah. uh, researchers that look at how people learn in informal settings. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Well, Dana, if you, I mean, let's just say money and funding and, and, and getting stressed out writing grants were no object. Uh, you know, what, what would Dana Whitelaw like to see in the future for the High Desert Museum? Well, all of our hopes and dreams include 
um, more immersive experiences for visitors. We know that bringing more art in has been really impactful for our audience. We see our audience and our visitors, um, and we do visitor evaluation research. You might be stopped while you're here to answer some interview questions. And we love to know how our audience is responding to things. And um, and art is an area that we have we have room to grow with like a really big gallery so we can bring in really large installations uh, here. Uh, experiences outside that bring our visitors into unexpected and surprising ways to see the landscape. Like what about a canopy walk that brings you up into the canopy of the Ponderosa Pine Forest that might appear to be really homogeneous, but is a rich habitat for lots of different species here. Um, those are a few things on the list. Awesome. I have one one last question before we wrap up because I, I really want to know, I'm getting into your brain. What is the last book that you read? Oh, what is the last book that I read? I'm not quite, um, oh my gosh. And the title of it is escaping me and it's sitting right there on, um, it's Anthony Dewar's newest book who he wrote all the light. I can't, uh, cloud cuckoo land. Thank you. It took me a second. Oh yeah. I read that recently too. Yeah. It's a good one. Yeah, I really enjoy him. I'm a big fan of um, fiction in my nonfiction world. Yeah, keep you, you know, just have a little bit of lightness in your world, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> Although that book was a little intense, so I'm not sure if it was light, but. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's still fiction. Yes, yes. Still a, an escape from reality. Yeah. Well, Dana, thank you for taking the time. Uh, we've reached the end of our space here. Anything you want to say to listeners before we uh, we end our podcast? Well, I hope that people will be inspired to come visit the High Desert Museum and perhaps look with more scrutiny at some of the subtlety that is yeah. here. There are some big, obvious things and smaller things to notice on your next visit. Right. Thanks so much, Dana. Uh, yeah, for thank you both for having me. Yeah.